Mark Ronson is the DJ producer in the truest sense of that term. There are simply not many people who have done what he's done with that level of success and uh, diversity. There are just not many artists who've managed to, on the one hand, produce a record like Amy Winehouse's album, like seminal Stone Cold classic, at the same time, DJ the Super Bowl or DJ a backroom hip hop party and co-write and bring out the best in other artists. And all the while, the reason why I say DJ producer is all the while he's using you know, his musical chops, his uh, psychological collaborative tactics. But at the same time, it's a wealth of skills and experience, knowledge, samples, all developed from years and years of being a DJ. So I sat down with Mark. Uh, it's always a pleasure. He's really smart, knowledgeable, funny, curious, honest, very honest guest. And we talked about his career. We tracked his origins in uh, New York as a DJ. We talk about hip hop. We talk about Duran Duran, funk. We get into some things about everything from baseball to Biggie. It's particularly enlightening. I, I really enjoyed talking about the process of working with so many different types of artists and how what you bring to the table as a producer and the journey as a producer to grow in your confidence and to learn how to best work with different people, what skills to bring to what scenario. Um, it was really, really enlightening and it was a pleasure. So this is Mark Ronson on Last Party on Earth. Mark, I'm really excited to talk to you. So I want to ask you what was like kind of ground zero question when you were a kid, first person you remember kind of wanting to be like? I definitely wanted to be, well, the very first thing that I wanted to be like was a Muppet. So that's not really a person, but I was really <laughs> obsessed with the Muppets. And in fact, when my twin sisters were born, they're two years younger than me. I was obviously very jealous. So anytime someone would come over to the house to visit the family i would go like have you come to take the muppets away you know like i was like a little english boy i think that i definitely i'm not sure who but my first thing that i wanted to do was play the drums at the age of three or four okay i don't know if i had a drummer there was somebody specifically there were my parents were this kind of vivacious party couple in London in the late 70s so people like Simon Kirk from Bad Company were around the house and I remember waking up in the middle of the night a lot and there would be 60 grown-ups you know I could I couldn't see over anyone's waist like that's how it looks in my head and there's like ashing and there like someone's patting my head as I'm like kind of <laughs> milling through the crowd towards the speakers because I would always just want to be near the speakers and then I would start playing air drums, like in my own world, oblivious, like to whatever was playing, like a disco song, a rock song, whatever. And it was Simon Kirk who, I think, as my mom tells it, said like, hey, uh, your son is very cute. He looks like he knows what he's doing. You should get him a little drum set. So that was the first thing that I sort of wanted to be or do. Drummer. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, I want to... Nobody asked, but I had just written in my notes here. I, I asked. I okay. wanted to know. <laughs> what did you want to do? Well, I just written in my notes. I thought it was it was a combination hybrid of Ozzy Smith and Nick Rhodes. Oh, yeah. It was like part 
part shortstop, part synth pop. Yeah, Ozzy Smith played for the Cards. Cards. That's very yeah. Because yeah, I moved to New York in third grade, nineteen eighty three, and. I realized I had to like get down with all these American things and some of them seemed really exciting. So I was like, I got to learn about baseball cards. All the kids do this. So I started buying baseball cards and then my favorite team was the Orioles because they had won the World Series the year I moved there. Like, who's the best team? Okay, that's my team. Just sort of, oh, they had, is that Cal, Cal Ripken? Cal Ripken. I remember my Ozzy Smith card. I remember, that's how I remember that he was on the cards. It's the, kind of the only frame of reference I would have for it. Yeah, I always thought there was something just crazy badass about a shortstop yeah yeah it's controller but, but exactly it's funny that you say the nick Rhodes thing because in fourth grade then my duran duran obsession was at a full peak and i found six kids that i would train to play wild boys horribly at the children's talent show and uh we never rehearsed in the same place together i mean it was a cacophony we were like yelled at by all the teachers but we thought we were so cool we literally set up like simmons drum kits on stage for my <laughs> stepdad and played wild boys at the at the lower school assembly but i love john taylor he was much prettier than i would ever be but i john went john taylor is just like the, he looked it's like a a jungian archetype of what you the best you the, could possibly and, look. Yeah, with that and red, I and I with the red sash and the yeah everything the moves. The, hair the, ah, the, but um, I went to get my hair cut. My mom, <laughs> I think, took me to like the cool, trendy place she went to because she wanted her kids to feel cool. And uh, I asked for a picture. Of, I took out a picture of John Taylor from like Smash Hits magazine out of my pocket and showed it. And then I left the place like really mopey. And my mother's like, "What's wrong with you?" And I was like. I she obviously cut my hair like Nick Rhodes, <laughs> like nine <laughs> nine years old. I wanted I was I wanted to I liked Nick. It was a little more little more I don't know synthy maybe. So yeah, no, I love. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. Actually, uh, he's awesome. Such a sweet guy. I love him. It's funny you mentioned Wild Boys. I'm just gonna jump ahead because I heard something you said. Uh, you gave like a, an introduction or speech or something about Duran Duran, and you had mentioned you heard it as kind of funky. You mentioned Wild Boys as a song you played. So it's interesting because when I hear you, you reference Duran Duran and it's a bit more like the chic, dancier, funkier side of Duran Duran. When I think of Duran Duran, it was purely like the planet Earth, synthier, colder, new romantic side. And it's, I think, not to make too much of it, but it's an interesting divide as a starting point in what you're attracted to and what you hear. Now I love that. Now I appreciate that so much. Now it's kind of my favorite part. But at the time, I remember I almost thought like, oh, they've lost the plot. Yeah, because obviously like the 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 sequences from the Jupiter 4 that Nick had, like the along with Rogers playing, was just so tight. But I always had a real appreciation for even that that very tight, four on the floor groove that they did on that too but but even on the same record there were songs like if you think of girls on films that's like boom which is similar to like what tony thompson would be playing on let's dance so like they were always i felt like they were always grooving like maybe not then notorious they went full full kind of funk but i always love i think roger taylor is such an under sung drum and they talk about it a lot because he was forced to play with nick's sequencer for so long that he just became a tight like he had no Mm. choice but to just become like such a tight machine Mm. 
definitely underrated as a dance act. I mean, whatever that means, just just purely for the for the groove side of things, underrated. Yes, as a massive fan. Yeah. Um, so, what's the first record you bought with your own money? The first, I remember that. I would take my pocket money that was like maybe 50p a week or something and you could you could get a 45 single for that. I remember some kids like comic books, the Beano or whatever else. And I would go down and I had a little My Fisher Fisher Price or my first Sony. It had like block primary colors record player. And I, I remember like kind of like somehow lifting this like plastic tone arm onto a thing. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like a clear image in my mind. But the first record I really remember going down it was like a 12 inch was sly fox let's go all the way and i remember like loving the song and being like going to tower records and being and looking through the like things till i got to the s's and being like oh that's it pulling it out and uh that's i'd really remember that well it's a party record that's a pretty it's a pretty slamming record actually yeah it's all like drum machine and it's it's kind of tough beats actually under there. Yeah, it's actually like, I think the drum beat was taken from like a proto hip hop record, Flyboys. And then it had, I because I, I was kind of obsessed and you always like do a deep dive into these songs from your youth. Like it was really big at alternative indie radio and black radio and then became a pop song because it had this kind of like meathead, like boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom, with some, and it had a Prince thing. Like he, I mean, the guy was, a little bit like now you listen to records that you heard as a kid and you're like, oh, if I was a 20 year old listening, I'd be like, oh, they're ripping off Prince. But you don't know that. You just hear it and you like it. You don't have that sense of putting things in boxes or judging it. No, I but love I, that. I try to, that's the, that's pre-taste. Pre-taste, just instinct, pure instinct. And and yeah, and it's still a great song. I've tried to cover it with Spank Rock. I de like I always come back to it. There's something about it that's... Uh, just etched in my nostalgia DNA. Working in a factory Eight days a week Try to make that last Down what I beat Hard to keep us One thing that I always remembered, I think, if uh, by memory, he says, work, working for a dollar. Like, he doesn't say working for a dollar, working for a dollar. Eight days a week. Yeah, eight days a week. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. New York City looks like an apple core, asphalt jungle, need to be a man of war. I always find, like, 80s pop lyrics, like, by today's standards, are basically Prouse. Like, if you think of Pointer Sisters' Automatic, that line when they say... All I can manage to push from my lips is a string of absurdities. Like, where the fuck does that fly on Z100 today? Yeah, the the. I also think it's amazing how the songs from before a certain age they're like locked in your permanent memory. Like, like the like the lyrics are just there on recall. They're there. And then if you ask me to remember lyrics from a song from like two years ago, it's hopeless. Like I got, yeah. I got no chance. Yeah. Uh, what was uh what was your first paid gig, DJ gig? My first paid gig was, uh, I was 17, senior year of high school. There was a, I played in bands in high school, but I got really into hip hop and I didn't know, I knew I was never going to be a rapper and I didn't know anything about production. So at that point I knew that turntables was this thing, was my way into like this thing that I loved. Why do you think you had no chance of being a rapper? I had no interest. Oh no, sorry. So I had no interest in being a rapper. That's a good question. So I'd 
bought my got my turntables for graduation. I'd started to buy like a couple of twelve inches before of the things that were out at that time. So there was it was Diggable Planets, Red Man, Time for Some Action, Ziggy Raking the Dope, Pete Rock, Reminisce Over You. I remember the first four twelve inches that I bought when I knew that I was going to DJ. Well, I'll be raking in the dope, boy. Just raking in the well, I'll be raking in the dope, boy. Raking in the dope, raking in the dope, boy. Just raking in the well, I'll be raking in the dope, boy. Just raking in the well, I was raking in the dope, boy. Cruising to a beat when I saw the tea that looking dandy and sweet. I said, What's your name? She said, Quilla. I said, You wanna ride to my crib? She said, Already in the back, cause I had skipped all the bowl. Make the mad noises as we pushed in. I just would hassle these promoters and because I was kind of, there wasn't a lot of competition and I was just cool like being in everybody's face, I hassled this promoter, Phil Dannenberg, who threw like a sort of, you know, the drinking age was 21, but people turned a blind eye. He'd like got some bars on the Upper East Side. To, How old are you at this point? You're 17? 17. They would throw these parties in these bars on the Upper East Side, these kind of like high school parties. And I remember, and I took... My turntables, two speakers that I borrowed, like a PA and an amp from somebody, and it was actually a snowstorm in New York that night. And I remember loading them into the back of the cab after the gig, like, but just so psyched. Like, I think the guy paid me 50 bucks, and I probably lost money on the night, but it was so exciting, and it was just, like, kind of funny that it was also just, like, taking all your shit into a tiny club where 11 people showed up in a snowstorm. It almost sounds like I made it up, but it's true. Do you have milk milk crates? I had milk crates. I had probably enough records for one milk crate. One milk crate? Yeah. Yeah. At that age, that's what I was. I I measured success in milk crates. Yeah. I was like... When you get up to two milk crates, it was like, that's big time. So, but I just, so I'm curious when you're 17, I guess that's like 90, what, 94, 95? 93. 93. So in 93, when you say you had no interest in being a rapper, for example, already at that age, not wanting to be necessarily a front man or, or, or like the decision at that young age to be yeah. a little bit more behind, whether that's yeah. metaphorically behind the booth or whatever. Was that, that was a conscious thing that you felt just worked for you? Yeah, I, you know what, I remember calling, so I was in my high school band, the Whole Earth Mamas, and there, was, there were two <laughs> guitarists, me and this guy who could just shred his ass off, and it was the era of living color, and like he was this black dude, and Ibanez could just shred. He was such a technically Ibanez, adept. Shit. He was such an adept guitar player, and I was just a, I was a rhythm guitar player, but I was probably there for vibe. Like I, I wrote songs, and I could help get us the gigs, but I was certainly like not pulling my weight from a maybe technical standpoint. I um, remember talking to my best friend Alex on the phone one night just like fantasizing about yeah this band's really gonna be great and I, th- I see myself as this kind of like guitar <laughs> you know like they're probably seeing like Slash within in the November Rain video with no shirt and a big like top hat is, and uh, in my head these fantasies and Alex just goes yeah you think cause like I always just saw you as like a kind of like behind the scenes type guy <laughs> and he, he was totally right, but I was friend? so <laughs> outraged. I was like, fuck you, bro. Like, That's a good friend, it. though. That's like a real friend. Great. What a great... He's still one of my best friends in the whole world. And it was right. It was He was right. And somehow I must have just figured that out by myself kind of a bit subconsciously and a bit intentionally. 
even if it's painful for a moment, it's a, it's a, a vital, a, a vital, uh, the self-recognition, especially when you're young, is not always easy. I mean, there's so many people that just blindly go on wanting to be quote unquote upfront, you know, with no. Yeah. I mean, DJing, and I'm sure you had this conversation with quite a few people, so I don't want to, we don't have to get into that zone, but I remember DJing in parties where sometimes the crowd would not even be able to see you. Like you had your turntable yeah. shoved on the end of the bar and you had to crane to see if you were rocking the crowd or not and you could feel the energy. Like that's how I loved and came up to know DJing. Occasionally the booth was a focal point of the room, but very rarely, like even if you had a perch, no one was looking at you. So when that change happened, and for me it came later because I wasn't right off the bat playing in, a, in sort of EDM world, I was so awkward. Like I didn't know what to do as soon as I yeah. became a focal point of Same. the crowd because <laughs> it's just not, it's, and I just, I, you know, yeah, I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure there's a lot of us like that. Of course, from that, our generation, we're all, we're pretty much the same age. And <clears throat> that was a real thing. It's funny. I, I talked to kind of, my DJ here was Jeff Mills and I talked to him last week and I, I talked to him about when I first heard him play at the limelight in 93 in New York. And so here's Jeff, who's like the most electric visual DJ in the world. And the limelight DJ booth was three stories up. Like no one, I remember it. no yeah. one saw him play. Like no one actually, like what we all think of now is of course it's Jeff. He's throwing records around. No one saw it. I saw it because I got into the booth one day by luck. Yeah. I remember all those booths in those classic places, Twyla, Sound Factory, like I, I would always play the side room because I played hip hop. So I'd always be playing that side room of 150, 200 people. But like Junior Vasquez, like I, like no one, because it was almost like a mystery and he would start the night, turn off, like all the speakers in the club suddenly had to go to him. So I was killed at, you know, 3 a.m. And he, <laughs> he would just talk and, at the, and kind of berate the crowd a little or whatever he felt like saying at that moment. And it was even more voice of God because you had no fucking idea where it is. Like, you think you came here tonight to have a good time? I'm going to show you. And you're like, what the fuck? It was, it's like real genius when he's like, God, Kenneth, this is God. Or weird science, which one? I can't remember. So in 93, I started, because I lived in, in uh, Montreal, and I would drive to New York and I was like 18 years old and I would go to Limelight or Storm Raves out in Brooklyn or uh, NASA parties, you know? And, and I guess in 92 and 93, New York was our main option and the parties were incredible and it was all going on. I was just, I was curious kind of, cause you're, it's pretty much coincides with when you're de starting to DJ, mostly I guess hip hop parties. And I was wondering, New York at that time, did you brush up against the rave and the techno scene? Did you party at those parties as well? Did you know what was happening? Was it overlap? Is it all the same? It's actually crazy because now that you're saying NASA and I'm thinking about that chill out room, I suddenly had this flashback, literally an acid flashback of going, being in the chill out room, watching Ani oh, DJing. Oh, shit. Yeah who's still Ani, but now he's not on E, like O-N-E. I was going to say for our he's listeners, just, it was O-N-E. Yeah. Obviously. Now he's just like a really, really great New York club DJ named Ani, A-N-I, which was probably always his name. So I remember watching him do something with doubles and being 
fully transfixed. So somehow this coincided with my staying up late, tape recording the Stretch Armstrong radio show and discovering some underground hip hop. But actually, if I have to give credit to a single moment for making me want to DJ, it was probably the chill out room at NASA. And then Dimitri from Delight would spin there sometimes and he would play a lot of rare groove stuff like Funking for Jamaica by Tom Brown. So I was getting a lot of my learning DJing stuff from NASA because that was some all ages shit that all my friends went to that I could get in that I could get into. I, I wasn't into techno, so I'd never be in the main room. I'd always be in the chill out room. And then a couple years later when I started DJing like Tom Mello, who threw a lot of like raves at the Roxy. Fuck. It's crazy. I was talking to my wife an hour ago. This is so weird. I put on a t-shirt, okay? And my wife was like, well, I don't know. Is that t-shirt, like, is that is it new? It looks a bit old. And I was like, I told her I used to be friends with a guy named Tom Mello. Whoa. And, and the reason I mentioned Tom Mello was, I, I'll never forget, Tom Mello told me once, Tiga, he said, I never wear the same socks twice that he throws away his white socks after every use. And Tom Mello's not a name I throw around very That's often. That's great. No, I know. And it's it's great when you can just draw, like you haven't said a name in like that in 15 years, but you ju- it's sitting there at the ready in your head at any time. You're just, because, yeah. I think, and, I, and I think Tom he, was dating, Mello, he was dating Kier. He was. He was dating Kier, and everyone was like, yo, he dates a girl from Delight. And he, <laughs> because I was p- opening for Stretch, and uh, some of the guys playing the cool hip hop clubs, there was there was an intersection because all the rave guys would come because that was like the fly downtown shit. And then Armand and a lot of those DJs would come to our spots. So I would get hired to play the small rooms and like Tom Mello's thing. So I'm like on the flyer. The, I was DJing in the side room at limelight probably in my first year they just put out a book from the limelight and i'm there with like manic panic bleached like crew cut red like burgundy hair like in a triple five soul shirt like playing on this like giant rain mixer that's like my wingspan is like this to mix two records i had a triple five soul beanie it was like a a tube with a little no, that was the, the thing. Of course, Mike Tyson was wearing it on the cover of uh, the New York Post when he got arrested. That's <gasps> Camilla from Triple Five Soul. She was a friend. There was a lot of scenes intermingling at that time. There was the NASA scene and some of the rave stuff. There was um, the downtown hip hop scene, and then there was like Triple Five Soul and all these hip hop clothing brands starting, like a Nietzsche and the beginning of Stussy Union Fat Beats. It was all like this converging it was it was a pretty it's a pretty great time actually i try not to stick too much of myself in these interviews but it is interesting when you think all my production like you've done so many amazing records you work with so many people there's such a i mean it's almost too big too big a list to really kind of get into and for me at the the fire that was lit was something about trippy very repetitive a certain intensity that came with those experiences and that kind of music. And I guess I was wondering, as it translates into the music you made, was there ever any of that that you wanted to capture in your records, which is that really, really, I guess, druggy, repetitive kind of feeling, the energy, not so much the genre, but that energy, was it ever something that you wanted to, to play with or, or, or felt attracted to? Yes, like there's definitely techno and dance acts that I really 
I love, I love their music. I'm also in awe, and like it, that's the other thing. Like I never learned how modular synth works. So when I'm with James Ford occasionally, he's programming something. I'm just like looking in bewilderment as he's patching all these things, and it's like another language to me. But there were some really big songs actually, even for the hip hop crowd in that in house world. Not as druggy techno-y, like. There were the, there were staples like Bobby Conder's the poem. Oh yeah. There were there were things that uh that f- even French Kiss, which I guess is a little bit more, uh, I guess is French Kiss considered techno? Is yeah, it still house? I think so. Like, yeah. In terms of what I'm saying, definitely because French Kiss is a good example of it's it's the it's the proportions. It's this building tension, build release. Like I guess that's what I meant because yeah, it, that's just such a different thing from the hip hop approach or even the pop approach or even in a lot of ways certain kinds of funk not all but yeah yeah so it is a good example i think i was like impatient and i liked hooks and i just wanted to get to the next hook that's probably sometimes why i get like 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 ragged on if ever for like my production sometimes being vapid or not getting to the heart of things as much which i've only kind of really discovered in the past three or four years just because of my own shit that that i've gone through so yeah, there's, you know, but there were always records that I loved playing, even if it wasn't a hip hop crowd that necessarily looked like they wanted to hear it playing. When Stardust Music Sounds Better with you came out, that was just like something that I'd forced down the throat of my crowds, which obviously it wasn't that hard because it was really a incredibly monster. soulful disco record. <laughs> uh, and, um, around the world and like occasionally you'd put a hip-hop acapella over some of these things just to like like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down mm. you know like I, just to see how i could get over with those songs and 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 in the kind of clubs that i was playing and so some of the music did speak to me but usually like you know those songs are pretty soulful or have like a very like groovy bass line regardless of the sonic uh around the world like so yeah yeah, I guess it was just like, I was always just drawn to that other kind of music. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, the, the, the looking for the hook. Um, so what's a record that brings you to tears? Um, Real tears, like you actually have cried. I've definitely cried. I cried the other day because I saw that Biggie documentary on Netflix. Okay. And because that was such a part of the era when I was coming up, right when he died in 97, was just as I was kind of hitting my stride as a club DJ, I remember the promotions, street team promotions guy from Bad Boy bringing the acetate test pressing of Hypnotize to the club because he would probably take it to like three or four clubs that night, let everyone play at once, as this was before CDJs and stuff. So it was really, and I remember playing Hypnotize for the first time in a club before the internet, maybe Funk Masterplex had played it on the radio, and the whoosh, the Oof. collective rush through the whole room of that like 400 people packed club. It was called New Music Cafe, or maybe it was called Shine at that point. It kept changing the name. So, I, for whatever reason, I was 23, 22. I loved Biggie's music. It's very nostalgic. It's caught up in that sweet spot age where things are so important to you. And 
whenever I see that footage of Biggie from that era, even watching the the kind of slightly cheesy Hollywood movie about his life, Notorious, it was like eight years ago, the, the first bar of Hypnotize comes in and it just, I'm like sobbing. And then this new documentary on Netflix, I got a story to tell, which is actually really well made. And I think they're showing the footage of his funeral procession going through Brooklyn. And that's the last time I was moved to tears by a song. If I was going to pick something more conventional that 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 moves me not just because of context and stuff superwoman where were you when i needed you by stevie wonder somehow the beauty of that song just like shifts molecules inside me but there's very few songs that make me cry there's songs that i move by but i, I very rarely sob no that's why i mean the, when when the tears actually flow you realize like you said it's like a molecular thing i mean there's something yeah the Stevie, the Stevie Wonder one specifically because it's so beautiful. It's all, it's a song almost in two parts. There's the the first part, uh, Superwoman, and then there's this transition that's almost like a sieg of these interwoven moog parts that are so beautiful and it almost doesn't have a tempo anymore. It's like free time, and then it goes into the coda, "Where were you when I needed you?" And from those moogs out. It's one of my absolute favorite compositions. The, the moogs and everything about it is so beautiful. When the summer came, you were not around. Now the summer's gone and love cannot be found. Where were you when I needed you last winter? My love. When it comes to breaking down music, when you hear it, breaking it down a little bit more like a producer as opposed to just a listener, is that something you'd been doing for a long time? I definitely had a nerdy part of my brain that loved reading liner notes at 12 years old, and my stepdad was a big musician. He was in the is in the band Foreigner, so he would get Billboard, the music industry trade mag, delivered every Friday, and I think he barely looked at it. it was just probably if he had a record out occasionally just how are we doing but i would just pour over that thing every column like every week like i just loved it it wasn't because i wanted to know anything that i could show off there was nobody to talk about it with but i loved knowing it i was like this is this thing that i love and i'm learning the ins and outs of it with no context or no no like thoughts like one day i'm going to be something in this world so i better start learning now it was just so fascinating to me so and then I, I wrote about music for my school paper for a little while and got to interview bands and wrote reviews for hip-hop fanzines. Like I think because I didn't have a very, very obvious talent, like a prodigious talent off the bat, I was just, just knew I loved music but wasn't sure yet how I was going to get in. So I was just trying everything. I think that's a very DJ-type approach to things. A lot of DJs, I think, feel that, that, that it's like you know you want contact with the music. You want to get as close yeah. as you can to it. And you don't have an immediate, obvious other way. Yeah. So you're like a, yeah. That's why so many great producers were DJs first. You know, Jimmy Jam, Questlove, Chad from the Neptunes, Errol. Like these people with exhaustive musical knowledge. It's like it is your equivalent of, of kind of 
undergrad and graduate school it's like a seven years master program and like it's like it's like if you were a lawyer all you would do was read legal documents that's what music is only it just doesn't sound quite as like important to your grandma (laughs) well yeah i mean djing also it's just it's like yeah it's a school of it hardens your conviction your confidence you you know what works you know it. I mean, it's it's been tested in the laboratory. It's not even. It's your opinion plus plus plus. You know. Yeah. Speaking of grandmothers and and not impressing them, was there ever a serious candidate for an alternate career? I mean, I went to NYU, and I made an effort to look like I was studying something and I cared about something other than music. And then that didn't last long, so I switched to music theory, and then for about three years. I dropped out in the middle of, should we say walked away? I walked out of my last class in the middle of my sophomore year and I think my mom kind of had this wishful thinking that I, when I would, and I would tell her and we'd go along with this, like, this, this lie that we were both in on that I was still finishing or taking time off. But I think because I was supporting myself fully and working from the age of 18, nobody could either say anything really either because I was just... They were kind of trying to figure it out. And, you know, DJing 25 years ago wasn't just this thing that everybody understood what it was. My my stepdad, you would think about it in, in some normal families, the stepdad would be a lawyer and he'd be like, why are you playing in this band? You got to go back. Like, weirdly, my stepdad was like a guitar player in a rock band and being like, why are you messing with these turntables? Why don't you go back to playing rock and roll guitar? Like, it was a funny thing. <laughs> rock like, and he roll just, guitar was like yeah. the architecture of your... Exactly. Um, and then my family in England, my dad's family, because my mom and dad split, my dad was in England. He loved music. He had a more austere, like North London Jewish family that really didn't understand what I was doing. And they were just like, my grandma, like they would just be like, just tell your grandma. You just... I think when I was on top of the pops for the first time with Uwe, I think my grandma saw that and she like understood there was something going on maybe. There's a category of achievements that are pretty much strictly for the grandmothers. Like there's all, like everyone has the moment where something is so blatantly, officially successful that the grandmother, like it clicks in her head and then you're... Yeah. And then she went right back to me like, now can you fix the clock on my VCR? Because <laughs> it's just always flashing. No, 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 no. I was like, okay. Well, that's the best. Thank God. I mean... That's awesome, because the craziest thing in the world would be if your grandma starts treating you differently. Yeah, she breaks out the fucking Moat. <laughs> what's, a, what's a record that made you want to make your own record? Um, I was DJing in these clubs, and clubs like Life, this has a little bit of a folklore of being almost like a Studio 54 of, of its time, and by no means is important or iconic, but... This made Studio 54 look like Six Flags. It was this wild time in New York when suddenly these were traditionally like the downtown clubs with the swanky VIP rooms were traditionally the domain of like these model promoters who then it was kind of this Euro-y, smug crowd and Puffy and hip hop is just like starting to own New York because it's the coolest shit going on and they've just minting money. So suddenly... Puffy's like, okay, well, we don't want to just go to like the uptown clubs and the tunnel where we always go. We like this kind of downtown fly shit and these girls are cute. So these scenes started to merge. Now there was always a downtown scene 
this interesting mix since the early graffiti days of hip-hop, skateboarders, graffitis, artists, drug dealers, athletes, whatever. But this was like a more high-end version of that. So suddenly, Puffy, Chris Rock, I'm, I was DJing in this little the thing near the staircase so i would just see like people coming down into the into the room and they'd walk past me and it'd be like rick rubin prince jay-z puffy like and a lot of normal people and people dancing having a good time but there was this one guy dominic chenier who used to come who managed d'angelo and he went on to become my manager and a very important person in my career but he came up to me and he's like i have this girl that i signed to my label nika costa i have this label with d'angelo and I don't know if you make music or not, but I want her music to sound like one of your DJ sets. Like, because I would play Biggie and EPMD, but then I'd throw in like a Shaka Khan and Rufus song. And then if like the night was at like a peak, I'd see if I could get away with playing like Back in Black by ACDC or something. And he was like, that's what this, that's what this girl is. So you got, you did the literal move from DJ to producer. Yeah, pretty much. And and he, I was already messing around making beats. I had NBC and I was making dem like demos and beats. Anyone I met in the club who rapped, I'd be like, come to my house tomorrow. Like, you want to fuck around? But this was the first time that somebody came up to me and was like, do you make beats? And I was like, kind of. And he came to my house and I, I probably talked a big game and he probably came and had a bit of a rude awakening. But through that period and his patience and Nika's patience for two years... I kind of became a producer because they gave me that, like I had the NPC and I, I was figuring it out as we went along and then her husband Justin produced the record with me and he had like, he was older and knew how to record instruments and all this stuff. And Were you, were you nervous? There was no expectation and it was so much fun and there was no pressure. I don't think you could ever make a record like that anymore that a brand new artist on, like it was on Virgin in the Nash, in the Ashley Newton, Nancy Barra era of like, they had Massive Attack and Lenny Kravitz and Spice Girls and they're fucking minting money and it was like the coolest place to be. And we were just figuring it out and the first record that, we probably made that made everybody go like, what the fuck is that? Was this record like a feather? Because I had made a beat through the course of working on this record. I'd finally become like a decent producer on the NPC. And I made a beat that was just totally to me, a ripoff inspired by DJ premier, like a kind of chopping samples and drums on a thing with a bit of swing. I would say the most influential producer on me when I was starting out was DJ Premier. So maybe a song like Nas is Like by Nas or, or Work by Gangstar would be two songs that had a big influence on me and made me want to make music. Even I was into DJ Premier. And he came in the booth at D'Angelo's Voodoo release album party. I was DJing at Central Fly. And I had a test pressing and I played that Nika Costa song. It wasn't out yet. No one knew it. And he comes in the booth and he's standing next to me. I've never met him and I'm so psyched oh, and nervous and everything. And he's like, what is this? <gasps> I was like, it's, it's, uh, it's Nika Costa, sorry. He's like, who, who did the beat? He's like yelling over the booth and I'm like, I'm turning the booth down. I'm like, uh, I, I, I did, sir. But I think he's like, who's ripping off my whole shit? And he's, and he, he goes, and he's just like there for like, 
10 seconds and then all of a sudden he just starts bobbing his head voraciously he's like this shit is hard oh. and I couldn't believe it it that's was it. The, it was that's it's it. still one of the highlights of all my production career and certainly it was my the highlight of my life up to that moment those are like you mentioned a few things already you mentioned like getting a white of hypnotized and playing it for 400 people when 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 music was so when you when that was the only way you could hear hypnotized was being in that room with you that feeling is second to none and the thing of making something and then the a per a person one of that few group that you really care about actually in their eyes forget even what they say people can talk shit but when you see like like they bite their lip whatever it is and knowing that you've connected with those are the two like best feelings in the world I got to a remind premiere of it like a, a couple, about a year ago because I interviewed him for something. And he was like, "Oh shit, that was you that <laughs> night." Oh yeah, that record. That's dope. Record's a dope record. Like it was just such a cool. Like he totally forgot. So basically, as a when you're producing, you're working with uh, an artist. So you got like the beat making side. Like I'm saying in the early days, whatever. So you do it. You got your beats. You got your MPC. You got your bag of tricks. And then obviously, there's like, you know, let's call it the psychological. I mean, there's the there's the bringing out the best in someone else, making other people feel comfortable. There's the give and take with ideas, those things. Obviously you're good at it. I mean, that part of it, I mean, obviously there's no way you can work with so many different amazing artists and not uh, whatever those emotional intelligence slash motive I and mean, whatever the, that skill set is. When it's not always the kind of thing you think about, about yourself, it's not necessarily an easy thing, but when, how early did you start to, feel like you had those skills you know in the very beginning you're not even really aware of that skill or that that might be you don't call it a skill maybe yeah you don't realize it's a skill because you just want to be making hot fire beats that like you're sitting in a room playing and someone's like damn and and hip-hop could be a little more transactional like you might somebody listens they like that beat they take it back to their studio but i I probably understood somehow subconsciously that I had a good way with people because I was certainly hanging out with and spending a lot of time with rappers, whether it was Saigon or Nate Dogg or people that were from just like totally different worlds and and, and it, we could feel quite foreign to each other, MOP, people like that, but they always just seemed to click. Like I think I was able to just get the conversation right to the music in a way that mm. I realized that was the, always going to be the common thing. And then uh, and then you have other common things as well that, that unfold after. But I think that one of the first records, I wasn't aware of it. And then I, after my first album came out, it kind of tanked. So I got dropped by my label <laughs> and I was cold. Like I wasn't getting gigs and I... I made my version album by myself because I was just thought that I would be playing these covers of songs in the clubs I was DJing and because they started to get play on the radio in England, the Radiohead cover I did, suddenly I was sitting on a whole album of this thing that was that people were interested in. But I don't think it was until Amy Winehouse that I probably, and not even at the time, but I can look back and start to realize like, okay, there's something about me that's a calming presence for people that are usually troubled and not to get into cliches yeah. but it's kind of true that like sometimes really the most talented artists are the most you know troubled inner turmoil so i think i started to realize that there was something with these people that were these enormous talents that were also 
um, people that didn't love the outside world that much that they just enjoyed being with me or I could just get them to they just felt like that the studio was like a safe haven and I think a lot of people regardless of my presence or not feel like the studio is their happy place their safe haven uh, but yeah I think because I, I started to get asked so much by the time of the late night feelings album because that was all female singers so of course the obvious question goes like why do you think you're so good with or why do you prefer working with female artists and there there's no there's never been a conscious thing about that but I did grow up you know with a very dominant mother figure in my life and I was you know I had two sisters and she was like a very strong woman and a woman who had like overcame a lot of adversity and just kind of like just like dragged her kids to New York and was like I'm going to make a life for them so I don't know what it is it could be a combination of being a good listener uh, a combination of feeling comfortable around very like powerful extraordinary women I, I don't fucking know I hate to get into it too <laughs> I'm much sorry. it just gets like <laughs> in this culture no it's not I'm not it's not because you asked but it's not only about making people feel comfortable in studio it's also it's being able to converse and bridge the gap and exist in all kinds of different Which is worlds. something that like to you, probably it feels kind of natural. It's the way you are. To other people, it's inconceivable. To other people, and I feel like that too. I'm kind of like that where, you know, you, you can have all kinds of different friends and you, you instinctively look for the common areas, which are usually music. But there's other people that instinctively look for the differences and the barriers and they find themselves in very different situations, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's something that I realize is a lot of the reason why I am where I am. Like, I think that I'm not the greatest beat maker, the greatest songwriter. I can't just sit at the keys and just knock out some amazing tune by myself like a Jeff Basker. But I know that it's, that's part of the thing of growing up a little bit, like knowing that like, okay, maybe it's okay to say that, you know, you didn't get here because you're the best at producing, but some of your other talents and things that make you quite likable are the reason that you're in the room a lot of the time. And then you find out other ways to patch up that stuff. So you like rise to the occasion continually, but yeah. Yeah. It's not always as glamorous, but the thing about putting other people at ease or being a good listener actually is probably rarer than banging out something on keys. Yeah, and and Jeff Basker is good at both, so I definitely don't want to make it look like <laughs> when I was saying Jeff, but he's like a he's as rare as unicorn poo. But I also think that I'd rather be a middling to healthy level of talent and well adjusted than being at that other spectrum of the whatever you want to call it, Glenn Gould. Kurt, whatever, whoever you want to say that's just like the geniuses and the, you know, and, and even the geniuses that aren't tortured, then they lose all anonymity. And, you know, I, my level of fame is enough to get me a table at a nice restaurant sometimes at la the last minute. And maybe an occasional like NYU music school kid will pass me on the street and go like, hey, you know, I really love that. <laughs> I love your work. And like, that's such an acceptable level of that's all that's i hope it never goes more than that i mean it's not going to i'm 45 <laughs> well um so when it comes to the lot about production still i guess it's a little bit the same but the the learning curve and i guess a lot of it you're learning it live you know you're put in these situation sessions with other artists and you're 
you know, you're kind of, there must be a certain degree of scram, you know, doing it live with them in the room. The point of feeling comfortable, I guess maybe a bit more transparent as a producer and comfortable with the their talents, not feeling like, oh shit, I have to bust out something crazy on keys right now. Was there, is there a moment where you felt more and more comfort or that's just like a gradual thing or you always felt it? I've always felt it until maybe like a few years ago. Like I'd always start a new project. It's very rare anymore that we like produce a whole album for someone, but even going in the studio with somebody for the first time, even if it's just for two, three days, like I used to always have this horrible sense of dread and anticipation, this mix of a blind date with the first day of school, like horrible, <laughs> like this is going to be the time that I just like run plumb out of ideas and everyone's going to realize I've probably been kind of making it up as I go along. And then there's a combination of a, a confluence of things that happen. Probably I can say to myself without being arrogant, you've been doing this for 15 years now and you know, not every time do you write Imagine, but you're pretty, sh it's pretty clear now and been proven that you go in a room and something's going to come out. You're not going to suddenly lose. A, it's not like the room is, the keyboards are going to turn into kryptonite and you're Superman. And also, this is more therapy from the therapy side of things, but let's do it. Those fear-based, anxiety-based drives that I had drove me so much that they become your best friends they are their own addiction so you're and you and you're like yeah you know what like i i always like throw up before the gig but that's great because that shows how much i love it or you know i stay later than everyone in the studio but that's because like i care about the shit more than anyone else in the and you they start to become weirdly like your friends and you lean on them and you, you become so used to them that you it's hard to say goodbye to them and also like see them as I guess what I'm saying is just realizing that, that that kind of driven by that fear is not, fear doesn't always have to be the only motivator. So I've gotten a little bit better with the other side of it, finding other motivators, joy, fucking chords, listening, getting inspired to something just before I get to the studio so I can rip it off, no. <laughs> so what's a record that you that makes you jealous because it's so good? I mean, I don't really hold myself against the standards of, say, like a Stevie Wonder record. Occasionally something will come out that's close enough to my wheelhouse that sounds like something that I could have made if I just had a little bit more magic and happened to be in the room on that day. I just mean something that's close enough to my wheelhouse, either genre-wise or sonically, that that I can listen to and be like, fuck, that's so fucking good. So I, I jealous is a weird word because it's not a great word for the record. It's a but but I guess just something that came and smacked me up outside the head out of nowhere and it was probably the last time I remember listening to the same song seventeen times in a row was Slow Burn by Casey Musgraves. I think I didn't know anything about her. I was still living in LA and I'd gone to Little Dom's for breakfast and someone said to me, "Did you listen to the Casey Musgraves album yet? Did it just come out?" And I was like isn't that like the alt country like kind of cool but like it's country right she's like you should maybe listen to it you might like it and i went home and slow burns the first track on side one and i felt like i'd just been like punched in the gut and it just has like a beautiful wistful melancholy her voice is lovely it does all, does all the things for me so that that was one good in a glass good on green good when you're putting your hands all over 
know the song. I know she's huge. I listened to it. It reminded me a bit of a Neil Young song. That's a little bit, that's far out of my wheelhouse. I know exactly what you mean though, but you're always envious of the things that for whatever reason you think you almost, you know, it's, it's, I don't legitimately get jealous of Leonard Cohen, even though he's my hero, yeah. but I will get jealous of music sounds better with you, you know, or, or, yeah. Or, but then when I listen to those songs, I'm like, yeah, but now I know where I, right where I would have added one extra element that would have like not <laughs> ruined it, but just tried to make it more clever and would have probably taken it out of this thing where it could have been on the radio. Like I think of like a song like rolling in the deep. Oof. Like I, if I had produced that song, I would have totally fucked up. I wouldn't have made it, as simple and tough as it is, and I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. It's just like that record is perfectly produced for exactly what it's supposed to be, and and I, I know that I would have fucked it up. Having worked with a lot of different stars and made a lot of different records, and I guess some become massively successful and some less so, I've always been a little bit intrigued from the outside. You know, why some things make it and others don't. Do you think... Is there a lot of luck in the end? I mean, is it really a meritocracy? I don't think that there's any way to know those things. I think you have talents that come along that are so supreme that you know that they probably would have made it regardless of converging forces and things. Like even if it wasn't that record, they would have made it. Like there's no way that maybe a voice like Amy wouldn't have broken through somehow. But I do remember, and I'm sitting in the room where we made all those demos I remember Darkest Bees, her A&R from Island Records, coming in and hearing the demo of Rehab for the first time. And we had been working together for about two weeks. And I played it, and it was like I hit Spacebar in this Pro Tools demo, and it's like four bars in, not even. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said, no, he goes wheel up wheel up like he starts like he's jamaican but he starts making noises like he's at carnival like bring that shit back and i was just like first of all i wasn't famous or big and no one was coming to us expecting some massive hits it was like i'm gonna put this girl that's really talented with this producer who's kind of had a cool first record but nobody's fucking with him really either and we were just making the shit we like so when he was basically ding 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 saying like dollar signs coming out of his eyes like a looney tunes i i was so shocked i was excited and flattered because i was like oh i'm glad he likes this thing that we're fucking with because that means we'll get to make more of it but the records that i've been involved in that have really reached something or uh, maybe 80 percent of them shallows another one locked out of heaven by bruno like they were they like came out of a jam or a feeling or it felt like something in the room but never like this is everyone's gonna fuck with this because they don't didn't sound like anything that was on the radio at that time or that had been on the radio for 30 years so i i, I never know i did think you just go on a feeling they tried to make me go to rehab i said no 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 yes i've been black but when i come back amazing like in on our world where everything seems to be still like they're, they're working on predicting everything and that element of mystery is still pretty amazing i feel like max martin and the weekend when they're like adding that last keyboard to ding 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 i think there's like a moment that they're already high-fiving the room and they 
they're so genius about it. And I this I don't mean like Max Martin has a formula, it's cold and calculated. I think when you're that pro, I think maybe by the end of Uptown Funk when we were at Cherry Lane Studios or whatever in Toronto, like because Bruno was playing the Maple Leaf Center, I like had to go up there with like a five string bass because there wasn't one to be found around and we we're recording the very last touches. Like maybe when we did that last like like we were kind of like never thought it was gonna be a huge hit we were just like this feels good now finally seven months but this feels good your dream show you get you get the chance to curate your dream show three artists I picked Stevie Wonder Steely Dan and Tribe Called Quest because I it would be impossible to me to name my three favorite favorite favorites ever but the catalog of those three would just keep everybody happy for a long time yeah except me but that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast yeah i won't be coming to mark cella no way I'm not invited. <laughs> you're allowed three okay this is i want to say i've done 20 of these shows and the answer your answer to the next one is the best one hands down uh i asked you you get three vip tickets to invite people anybody in the world to come to your show who comes richard lewis bomb answer larry larry david <laughs> and Dave Chappelle. Mm. I just wanted to clown. I started to think of like, and then I tried to be like a wise ass me, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, like who are like iconic trios. But I just realized actually like you would just want people that were just cracking, like cracking you up the entire time. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, Chappelle's like top, top, top level. Yeah. Genius. Yeah. I mean, I actually find sometimes the, it, the, that that feeling of envy we talk about when it comes a little bit closer to home. For me, the people in the modern world, it's really the comedians that I really? feel get my top, 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 top marks because it feels like they're the only ones that are fully synthesizing everything yeah, that's happening I see in, that. in, with real intelligence. And then second is probably MCs. Like those yeah. are the two, the two ones that seem to really, really get it. Anyway, but, but uh, I'm gonna give you like gold star for Richard Lewis because Thank you. I mean, his look, yeah, everything. He's just 10 out of 10. There's a great documentary that's out right now uh, about the comedy store. And he's not in it so much, but it's all those kind of OG guys. DJs, comedians went together a lot in New York in that era because before the comedy seller was this name brand thing because of roasts and things hitting TV. That was just all my friends. You, you, everybody like kind of had the similar working hours and like were a little bit kind of like fucked up people and got paid in cash and everyone got off at 3 a.m. Like there was this weird draw between the comedians. I would go see, you know, I'd see Chappelle, like he'd be doing a set, like walk on at like, you know, new, I mean, midnight or something. Like it was just like a really thing. Like the, actually, when I moved back to New York a couple of years ago, and decided to just walk up to the cellar and had the rude awakening of a line around the block and like, oh no, we're full for the next seven days because this was now a thing. I was like, wait, this is just like where my fucked up friends used to go to like watch their fucked up friends be funny. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of uh, overlap with comedians, certainly with DJing and comedian. There's a lot of like, I also thought always that the the parallel between, you know, a joke has to make people laugh and a good track has to make people dance. And yeah. there's like a level of honesty there that it, it doesn't lie. It's like, okay, my, my track rocks, they're all dancing. Totally. Who plays your after party, your dream party after party? Um, some of my favorite nights out in New York 
or anywhere recently have been soundtracked by Questlove on the turntables. There's a real like egalitarianism. First of all, like a crazy encyclopedia, encyclopedic knowledge of music, and then also just across genre in a very like non snobby way. And he'll just it's just really good. In fact, one time I was in Vegas because I was playing the next night, and there was a DJ at a pool party who was just killing it like four bars just like flipping between beats and just like in a way that only somebody that you know who's a gigging dj who's not famous yet who's like really practices a lot like plays that cleanly in vegas and i turned around and it was Questlove, and i was like oh when did you get better than all of us at djing as well like on top of everything else that you do so he's pretty great yeah hey do you uh were you like an after party kind of guy like a late night guy or yeah yeah, like, I mean, I, in the beginning, I played it like Save the Robots and shit, where your slot would be like 4.30 to 6. And I was I was kind of like a druggy kid. Like, I, I liked just getting some blow in at like 3.30 and not like crazy. I was never like Tony Montana in the booth, but there was like a thing of it. It was just like these little small micro amounts, but still weirdly like fucking, it's just as odd to be like, doesn't really matter what the amount is. So I was like, a par- <laughs> I was kind of like a... I was kind of a bit of a party guy. And do you dance? No. Never? I I hate, I can, and I will if it's like, if I'm somewhere with somebody that... Insists. I love (laughs) and want to, like in the moment, or I know it's going to mean something to them, but I really, I love that the DJ booth was this like safety from ever having to really dance. Yeah. I think you're, you're not alone in that department. So what is a closing record at your party? The closing record at my party or funeral? Yeah, you can take your pick. I mean, usually it's like how dramatic people want to go. I mean, the closing record at my funeral is definitely one of my favorite records of all time. The first hip-hop record that ever made me cry was They Reminisce Over You by Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. Okay. It's something about the moodiness of the sample. The lyrics were about a friend that passed there's so much in it and i also didn't know a hip-hop song could really make you cry like that or feel that over overcome with emotion at that time and that's a really beautiful song to have played at the funeral I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say think back? Yeah. 22 years ago to keep it on track. Uh-huh. The birth of a child on the 8th of October. A toast, but my granddaddy came sober. Count all the fingers and the toes. Now I suppose you hope the little black boy grows. 18 years younger than my mama. But I really got I like the idea of Pete Rock at a funeral. It's, 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 it's pretty slamming. Yeah, he played my 40th birthday party, actually. Pete Rock and CL Smooth and... They hadn't played together in a lot in, in a little bit of time, and I just kind of appealed to both of them to play together. So it's kind of like my it's like that Richard Pryor movie, The Toy, like where you're just like, I just really want this to happen. So you guys have to, everyone has to do what I want. Like I was just such a brat, but they're like, yeah, sure, give us a set list. I mean, Mark, I really there's like a million. I got a million questions. I really enjoy talking to you, and uh, yeah, I really I think you have a, a beautiful career. It's just amazing to be able to work with so many different kinds of people, achieve so many different styles of success, pop success, and all just all kinds of things. It's really, really it's it's nice to see, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Last. Did you enjoy that? Do you want more 
of that? Well, I just so happen to have a solution. If you want extended versions of every episode, including bonus content, sometimes 15 minutes longer, sometimes an hour longer, sometimes an entire extra episode, things that are mind-blowing, exposés, secrets, drama. If you want more of it, you sign up to my Patreon membership service. It is called Club Sexor. You go to www.patreon.com and you simply get more of what you already love, extended bonus exclusive versions of Last Party on Earth. That's it. Enjoy.